This morning, we continue to be in our final weeks of Revelation. And today, we're going to be covering chapter 19 as we get down to the last few chapters. I'm not going to have all the verses on the screen, so I encourage you to open up your Bibles or turn on your Bibles uh, and, uh, and follow along. It's all the way at the end, right? All the way at the end. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one of the ones that we have provided. You can keep it. Free gift to you. Now, if you remember, the purpose of Revelation is a couple, a couple things. One is to fully reveal who Jesus Christ is. Far too many of us, we see Jesus as a, a good teacher who taught us about the kingdom of God and a healer. And we saw him as a baby that was born in a manger. We see him as our savior who died and rose again. But that's not the totality of who Jesus is. He is also a coming king. And Revelation spells out when this, how this coming king is going to come again and bring a final end to sin and Satan. And so we've been, un, for the last seven, eight weeks, unpacking this and all the mystery of Revelation and, and looking at the details and, and the possibility of what some of them mean. But realizing that understanding the details and all the timelines is not the most important thing. Understanding the meaning of what God is trying to convey to us and to our hearts is what's most important. And last week through chapter 17, 18, and, and all the symbolism and, and, and all the possibilities of the details, we looked very seriously and soberly, as we should, at the meaning of those chapters. And, and that's that the, the seductive attractions of this world pull away the people of God from him. Church, we get excited about revelation. We get excited about end times, at least evangelicals do. But we have been fooled if we think that persecution in the end times is the greatest threat to the church. We are fooled if we think like preparing to take a stand and die for our faith is the, is the biggest battle that we need to prepare for. No, no, make no mistake. The battle that we need to prepare for, if we sit here today with our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior is the seductive nature of this world that tempts us to love the world more than we love God. That is the greatest threat. That's the threat we don't see coming that creeps up on us, being seduced in the ways of this world. Now, as we saw last week, God will not allow this to go on forever. In the pronouncement of judgment that we saw, Satan and sin will not have the last word. There will come a day, whenever that day comes. Now, as we move into 19 this week, and that day has been pronounced as we saw in 17 and 18, we're going to see how the heavens respond to this judgment of God. How do they respond to the judgment of Babylon and the ways of this world and, and Satan and the beast and, uh, um, and all of his armies that have worked for all of eternity to keep the people of God away from following him? Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. 
and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Verse 10, then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Did you know because I did not know until I studied this, that this is the first time in the entire New Testament that the word hallelujah is used. That's what I said. Well, really? It is only used in the book of Revelation. You see it in Psalms. But in the entire New Testament, this is the first time. Now, hallelujah, it is a, it's a sound of praise. It's an expression of worship. It's a, it's a sound of rejoicing. It's almost as if the reason that this is the first time we see this word used is that all of the New Testament has, has been building up to this moment. After 26 books and these 18 chapters of Revelation of seeing Jesus come to earth and, and doing miracles and, and teaching about the kingdom of God and then dying on the cross and, and rising from the grave and then ascending to heaven, but then sending his spirit and inaugurating the church that preaches among the nations and then we see the final judgment of God. And now, as Jesus returns, in light of all of history, there is nothing left to be said but hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Amen. All church. Mark this down. Let's say mark it in your calendar, but we don't know when it's going to be. You can mark it somewhere, circle it twice. Everything, everything is aiming towards the day that all of heaven and earth rejoice and scream hallelujah to the glory of God. I was fun. I was just sitting there this morning working on my message, and I, was, I don't even know how to picture it because I don't know what it looks like, but I was just picturing that day. We're all of heaven and the multitudes and the sound yelling hallelujah. What a beautiful day that will be. Amen, church? Now, they, 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 they yell hallelujah for a few reasons. For his sovereignty. For his strength, for his righteousness. And, and then, specifically, and the thing I want to talk about first is they shout hallelujah because of his judgment. 
Look right here in, in Revelation 19, verse 2. It says, For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Now, as we talked about last week, this term Babylon, this term prostitute is a reference to Babylon, rather, right? Which is this picture of a non-Christian worldly culture that has surrounded the church through all of history, luring people away from God, tempting them by worldly wealth, worldly pursuits, and worldly pleasures. Seducing people, even people who, who once seemed so dedicated to God's glory, seducing them in, into to spiritual adultery, into spiritual idolatry. Now, we talked about this last week a bit, but it's worth mentioning again. By using the term prostitute, we are being introduced or reintroduced into one of the great themes of the Bible. From the beginning to the end, we hear God saying through the Old Testament and in the New, I want to relate to my people. God says to you, I want to relate to you. But not just as a king relates to his subjects. Because I want to relate to my people like a husband relates to a wife. And I want them to relate to me as a wife relates to her husband. I'm going to say this again because it's a little weird at first. I want a relationship with my people like that of a relationship between a husband and a wife. In fact, you see Christians are referred to here in, in, in chapter 19 as the bride. Revelation 19, verse 7. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Do you see that there in verse 7? The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride. If you sit here today, and your faith, faith is in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are considered the bride of Christ. And this is a little difficult for us guys to get our minds around, right? There ain't no bride of Christ. There ain't no bride. Right? You don't see a man walking around with a t-shirt saying Bride of Christ, right? You don't see any Christian men with big old Bride of Christ tattoos. But yes, if you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you are considered a Bride of Christ. Now, you're also considered a son of God or a daughter of God. You're also considered a saint. You're also considered a priest. There's all of these terms and phrases that you see are used for Christians in Scripture, and they're used because they are trying to convey a meaning. They're symbols to help us understand what a right relationship with God looks like. Because far too many of us do not have an understanding of what a right relationship with God is. We don't. 
We have a wrong understanding of what it is. Or we have a half of understanding of what it is. But God says, no, if you have a right relationship with me, then you will have a relationship with me that is like a relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, why does he say this? Because he wants a relationship with you that is permanent, right? Even though the world has done its best to tear it down, marriage is still the most solemn and binding of all human contracts. That's the commitment that he wants between us. He goes, I I want... A, a relationship like a husband and wife because I, I, marriage is comprehensive. A right marriage affects every area of your life. Because I, I want our, mari- our relationship to be like a marriage because a relationship, a right marriage is personal, it's intimate, and it's vulnerable where you're fully exposed to somebody else. We read this in Genesis The two shall become, anybody? One. These things can only happen in a marriage relationship. For example, you look in the world today and people living together outside of marriage is more popular than ever. When you just live with somebody, or you're dating somebody, you're not not fully vulnerable to that person. You've held on to things. Now you may be making yourself physically vulnerable. You might be getting physically naked with them, but there's other parts of your life that you're holding back. Other parts of your life that you're not willing to get naked and vulnerable in front of them with. In the same way, we have made some of our lives vulnerable to God, but not all of it. We're not willing to give him and expose all of ourselves. Now, why am I spelling this out? Because unless you understand that God doesn't just want to be your king, but he also wants to be your spouse. If you don't understand that, there are things that you will never understand about sin and our separation from God. So we have a problem, I believe, that we discount sin far too much. We do not take the time to understand the severity of sin in the eyes of God. But when we understand the kind of relationship that God wants, what a right relationship looks like, then we understand the severity of sin. That sin is not just an oops, it's not just a mistake. Sin is willful disobedience against God. Sin, in in this context, it's adultery. You see this all throughout the Old Testament, how he accuses the nation of Israel of adultery because they go after other gods instead of him. That's what sin is in this context. Sin is, put in practical, simple terms, it's loving anything more than we love God. Giving anything, the title of your heart other than God. Making anything else more central to your life, to your imagination, and and to your passions and your emotions more than God. When you do that, that is sin. 
we're all guilty of it. Imagine a woman who's married. She has a husband. But she finds that her husband is spending every night at another woman's house, right? And, 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 and the, her husband and this other woman, they go and they'll, they'll have dinner together and, and he'll spend some money on this other woman. And they'll talk for hours sharing their hopes and, and their dreams and their fears and their worries, talking about their problems every night, hours and hours. And so one day the woman finally has enough and she, she confronts her husband and he says this, he goes, I don't understand why you're up so upset. I pay the mortgage. I come home at the end of the night. You have my last name. You have my money. You know, I mow the lawn. What's the problem? The wife might say something like, but I don't have your heart. I don't have your heart. I have all these other things, but this other woman has the deepest affections of your heart. This is what we do with God. This is what our hearts are prone because of sin to do with God. We'll say, you know, amen, I've been baptized. I go to church, you know, sometimes. I'll give some money, throw it in the, the, you know, the box, the basket, what have you. Yeah, I, I read my Bible in the year plan. I'll attend an event here and there. And yet we'll miss what matters the most is that something else has our heart. Something else has our imagination, our, our passion, our focus. Something else stirs our emotions. It, it could be your career wrapped up in your job and the way that you work. It, it could be your family. Um, it could be a, a romantic interest. It could be sports and athletics or your leisure time. It, it could be a social cause or, or some organization you volunteer your time for. It could be anything besides God that occupies your heart and mind, where your joy and your sadness rises and falls. And, and we live life in such a way that we expect God to just overlook this as this husband I talked about a few minutes ago would just expect his wife to overlook giving his deepest affections to another woman. We forget the warning that is found in Matthew 7 when Jesus says at the end of time, there'll be people that come to him and he'll say, we did this for you and we did that for you and this for you and performed these miracles for you. We did it in your name and Jesus will say, get away from me for I never knew you. And other verses that we find in the Bible that show how deeply God wants us to know him, that our relationship with him is what matters first and foremost. How we view him in our lives. Now, hopefully this morning, 
you, you're, you're instantly wondering. You're saying, oh, God, is, does something have my heart more than you? If you're not wondering that, either you're not paying attention or I guarantee you something else has your heart. Because anybody who longs after God will hear things like this and they'll wonder, man, is that me? They'll want to know that. If you don't want to know that something else has your heart, guarantee it. I shared before, Archbishop William Temple, he gave a couple uh, uh, tests, if you will, to find out where your heart is, to find out what you really worship. And he said, one of them was this, where does your mind go when you don't have anything else to think about? When you're driving in your car, heading to work, or you're driving home, or, or students, when you're on the bus going to school, or you're eating your lunch, or you're walking home, when you think about things and you're just daydreaming, where does your mind go? Is it God? Is it God's glory and his grace? Now, it doesn't mean you don't, can't think about anything else, but in whatever you think about, is God present in that thought process? Whatever it is, whatever occupies your heart, where your worries and your anxiety sits, and your joy rises and falls, that is your spiritual spouse. That's what it is. Parents, when you think about your children and you think about your hopes for them, is it that they, they get good grades, that they get into college, that they succeed at sports, that they have a good job? Is that what you talk about and hope for them? Or is, is it that they will fall in love with God? Now, another test is, is what area of your life gets your money effortlessly? Where do you just spend money without thinking twice? Because Jesus says where your money is, that's where your heart is. Or another way of looking at this is what are you willing to give money up for? Sometimes God calls us to things that cause us to have less money, but we don't want to give that money up. In either of those cases, you're loving whatever that is more than God. And you could apply the same test to how you spend your time and how you use the talents that God has given you. If it's not on your mind, if it's not on your heart to make sure that God gets first in every area of your life, then you probably love something more than him. You're trusting something more than him. Even in your anxiousness and fear, if his promises, if it's of his steadfastness and his strength and mercy in your life are not first and foremost among that anxiety and fear, then you probably love something else more. That doesn't mean it's a magic pill and you just like, 
God promises he'll be faithful and like butterflies come around and there's rainbows and stuff like that. But if your mind is not constantly going to him and his promises, there's something that affects you more, something that you hold on tighter to. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I don't, I'm not saying that any of the things that I mentioned earlier are bad, like loving your family or, or, or loving your job, your work. Like they, they have their God-given place. The problem is when we love them outside of their God-given place. Like, for example, it, it's one thing to be friends with a member of the opposite sex. It's another thing to go to bed with that person. It changes the relationship. It crosses a line. It's one thing to be friends with your career and to appreciate it, to provide for you and for your family to God's glory. It is another thing when it becomes your love and your passion and your focus and your identity. God says, I am your king, but I also am your father but I am also your husband. And until you understand this image of, of, of what God wants from you, what, what God seeks for you, what you were built for, you won't understand the severity of the nature of sin. And you will settle for less than an all-encompassing committed and passionate and vulnerable and intimate and trusting relationship with your Savior in heaven. God has so much more for you. He has so much more for you than a God you try to do good things for and not do bad things so you stay on his good side. I mean, think of what a loving marriage is and there's far too many that are not but when you think of a loving one and, and, and how it serves one another, most of us, we, we, we don't strive for that in our relationship with God. Our, our, our relationship with God is more like a principal and a student or a, a boss and an employee or a warden and a prisoner or, or punishing Zeus with a lightning bolt to strike us when we do poorly. We miss the intimacy that God wants to have with us spiritually. God is somebody that we, we come and visit on church on Sunday instead of someone that we take with us in every avenue of life because two have become one. This is what we should strive for. And, and to be clear, we're not going to fully obtain it we're not going to fully get it. We're not going to fully experience it this side of heaven. Right? That's not going to happen until we, we move permanently into God's house and we start living together. And we'll talk about that on Easter morning. But we are still considered the bride now. The bride of Christ. Now, let me ask you, and I'm asking you this question because what do we do with everything that I have just said? Well, let me ask you, what does a bride do when she's getting ready to be married? Does she just sit there and wait for the day to arrive? 
new. She, she's finding a dress. She's finding flowers and making out invitations. She's picking out uh, a venue. She's, she's going food tasting, right? Right? She's doing all of these things in preparation for the day that she knows is coming. In the same way, somebody who says, I have put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior is is a Christian, a son or daughter of God, a, a follower of Jesus that's going to be doing things to prepare. Go back to Revelation 19, verse 7 and 18. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. How do we make ourselves ready? You should want to know this if you are the bride of Christ. A good, healthy marriage as designed from the beginning of time, go forth and multiply, is going to produce fruit. In fact, Romans 7, it says this, if you put yourself in the hands of Jesus Christ, you will bear fruit to him. So what does that mean? Okay, back to marriage. Go forward and, and multiply, right? If, if there is a marriage, a, wedding, a marriage between two people that's on paper and there's no physical contact, there will never be any children. Right? Stark's never going to deliver. The stork, rather. But if that marriage goes beyond that paper, into each other's arms, children are going to be born. That's how we all got here. Now think about this. In Romans 6, it says this. Do not offer your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer the parts of your body to Jesus as instruments of righteousness. You are to belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit to God. If you have a right relationship with God, you're going to bear good fruits, good deeds in this world. Go back to our uh, career illustration as an example. If your career is not just your career, if it's not just your friend, but, but you get into bed, so to speak, with your career, if it takes that place of your heart, What is the type of fruit that you're going to give birth that's going to come out of that relationship? You're going to become a workaholic. There's going to become strain and stress. You're going to miss out on friends and family and pouring into them. There probably will be ethical compromises, big or little, because you've got to be successful. The way you view other people will rise and fall on whether they work as hard as you do. That'll be your fruit. But if you have a right relationship with God, if your heart is connected with God as a husband and a wife in this intimate, vulnerable uh, vulnerable and comprehensive relationship, then you're going to have time for people. Work will have its place, but it will not take God's place. You'll have humility because you will see people not based on how hard they work or don't work, but you'll see them based on whether they have found Christ or not in their needs and God working in them. There'll be humility. humility. Your identity will not be built in success. If you don't get promoted, you won't be crushed. If you don't get a raise, you won't live in fear. If you, if you get fired, you, you won't think all is lost. 
because it's not what your heart belongs to. In fact, you might be willing to quit a job or to take less money or you might be willing to get fired because you're not willing to compromise your faith. If you have a right relationship with God, if, you're, if you are, are doing your best to work towards this relationship, there's going to be fruit in this earth that's born. There's going to be these good deeds that are done. That's the bride of Christ making herself ready. And I pray, I'm just, I, like, I pray like, Lord, wherever we are not bearing good fruit, that you would, you would show us. Wherever we are bearing good fruit, you would show us. And we would celebrate that, but we'd also repent of the fruit that we're not showing. You would, you would work on our hearts. We'd strive for good works. But to do this, you have to have the right mindset. You have to change how you see God. When you get married, there is a mindset change. I remember early on in my marriage, we, we, you know, I grew up with a single dad, did whatever he wanted because he was, you know, they were, my parents were divorced. And so I never saw a proper relationship growing up. So when Marie and I got married, I didn't think much changed, right? Like I would go out, uh, like I remember one night I went out with my friends and I told her what time I'd be home, but I got into whatever I was doing and I had my phone shut off. I think I was playing video games, right? And I was in the heat of battle. So my phone was off. I needed to focus. And then I got home late. And I realized that that's where the real heat of battle was going to be. And, and Maria was like, why didn't you call me? And, I'm, and I was like, and I think I was stupid enough to respond with, why would I? Or what's the problem? And what I didn't realize in that moment, that about five minutes after I was not home when I told her I would be, her imagination went through every scenario how I tragically died. And my wife's a nurse, so she can imagine way more scenarios than the human mind should. I still had this, the mindset of a single guy. Now, eventually, through her patience and God's work, I realized my life was not my own anymore. Two shall become one. And so now she knows when I'm not going to be home on time. I update her. I text her. Praise God for like Apple phones where you could track someone else's location if they let you. So she can just see, right? Helps me out. But I wouldn't have it any other way. But because I got out of that single man mindset and realized that the relationship and the depth of intimacy I'm supposed to have with God, we have a closer union than ever before. Still takes work because we're fallen humans. But there's a depth of intimacy that I have. And it's the same with God as I've learned as I walk with God and that he was not somebody I just left at certain places or on religious holidays, but that he was someone that was to be in every part of my life. That in everything I did, like I think with every part of my life, I think, okay, I need to check with Maria or how would this affect Maria or what would she think of this, right? Now, as I've grown in my walk with God, I think by his mercy and people have poured into my life and his word, I now think, okay, how would this affect God? What would he think about this? I ask him, Lord, give me guidance. And now I have a deeper intimacy because I understand through his patience and other people in my lives the type of relationship that he is looking for. Do you have that intimacy with God? If you do, praise the Lord. 
but do not take it for granted. Because just as it is easy for a husband and a wife to drift, it is easy for you to drift from God. If you don't, take solace in knowing that God has given you everything that you need to serve him. This is why it says in verse eight, it was granted to her, the bride, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. It means God's given you what you've needed to be his bride. He's given it to you through his word and his Holy Spirit. This is the beautiful thing. You know, so so many religions teach about what we have to do to work, to strive to get to God. And yet we see another beautiful example of God's grace in this marriage, marriage illustration. If you're a poor person in this world, wherever you go, if you're poor and you marry a rich person, what do you become in that moment? You become rich. You've done nothing to earn it. You are, you are a benefactor of the relationship you have with the rich person. In the same way, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you become a benefactor of his grace and his mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I have everything Amen. that you need Amen. to live in relationship with me, to be my bride. You just have to access it. You just have to ask me for it. I will give it to you freely. So now wherever you are in your relationship with God, it's waiting. It's there. That intimate, all-encompassing relationship. You may not grasp it at first like a, a newly married couple. It takes work, right? It may not hit you in that moment, but as you start treating him as a husband, in your life. I guarantee you, you will start growing closer to him, hearing him clearer, feeling his joy and trusting in him more. But you can't experience those riches unless you tap into that bank account. Through prayer, through the mindset of him always being there, through the study of his word and what he says about who he is and who you are. And then growing together like we are here and serving him. And so this is my prayer for you this morning. For those of you that have a cold and empty and robotic relationship with God. That he'll begin to open your eyes in new ways what it means to be the bride of Christ. And for those of you that are holding back areas of your life, there's sin you're holding on to, things you're doing, you're doing, you know you should not be doing. You know that you're ultimately saying that you love more than you love God. That you would repent. You would give it to God and say, I give this to you. You would t tell brothers and sisters in Christ around you about them, say, I don't need this anymore. All I need is God. And you can do that. You know Why? You can admit how wrong you are. You can admit how far you are from God because when you realize, I'm a bride of Christ. My riches are not found in my identity or how good everybody thinks I am or how perfect I am. They are found in Christ and his righteousness and his perfection and what he has done for me. Let's pray.